Once again, the guests that we have on the Ortho Show are just absolutely remarkable. We're staying in Boston, in my hometown, where we're bringing on Eric Smith, who's an orthopedic surgeon that specializes in hip and knee replacement. He's the chief of arthroplasty service at the New England Baptist Hospital, which is one of our country's great orthopedic uh, hospitals. He has a remarkable history of you know, growing up in California. He loves to hunt. He's an outdoor guy. Uh, and decided to go through the Army. And uh, he spent 10 years of active duty in the Army uh, right around 9-11. He was deployed to Afghanistan during Operation Enduring Freedom. He's won the Meritorious Service Medal. I mean, he's just got a a rich, amazing history in his time of service uh, for our country uh, within the armed forces and and the Army in particular. And he's, uh, he's just got an amazing history of arthroplasty in Boston. He's worked at all of the great hospitals here and now as the chief of arthroplasty at New England Baptist Hospital. I love it. He's married to Liz Matskin, who's the chief of women's uh, sports medicine at the Brigham. So you've got two orthopedic surgeons married together with three daughters. And he gives a great description of really what's important for joint replacement, both for patients as well as physicians. It's a great episode. I know you're going to love it. Hashtag follow the fro. This episode of the Ortho Show podcast is brought to you by ModMed, envisioning a world where the orthopedic software we build increases practice success and improves patient outcomes. ModMed offers an intelligent ortho-specific cloud platform of healthcare IT solutions that help surgeons and staff save time, drive efficiency, and elevate patient experiences. To learn more and see a demo of the number one EHR system, EMMA, as well as practice management, revenue cycle management, analytics, patient engagement tools, and more, visit modmed.com slash orthopod. That's modmed.com slash orthopod. Modmed, it's about time. From Medical Media, this is The Ortho Show. Hello world, it's your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast, Dr. Scott Sigmund. It is always a pleasure to be here. We're bringing you the best of the best in the orthopedic space. Our numbers are growing exponentially just last month, over 8,000 listeners. So we're really excited about where we're going in the future of the program. We have an amazing guest today, Dr. Eric Smith, who's an orthopedic surgeon that specializes in hip and knee replacement. He's the chief of arthroplasty at the world-renowned New England Baptist Hospital, one of my favorites where I did some training. So Eric, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Scott, thank you so much. And it's a real honor to be here with you. It's uh, it's great. We're in staying in Boston, man. We've traveled all over the world on this show. We've had guests from everywhere. And now I get to talk to somebody right here in Beantown. So that's as uh, sweet as it gets. Uh, yeah, sometimes I think we do very good orthopedics in the Boston area. So hopefully we can talk about it. <laughs> yeah, a lot of a lot of medical information gets out of Boston, but not a lot gets in. That's one of my favorite lines having uh, have done a lot of training here. But uh, dude, you're you're like, you know, we do a lot of research here on the ortho show because we really want to know our guests. But but you're like the Jason Bourne of orthopedics, man. I'm like, I was scouring the internet for you, but you're like a ghost out there. I couldn't, I couldn't find a lot of information, but, but we always like to start at the beginning, you know, really where your, where your roots are, where you came from and, and why orthopedics. I was able to identify that you were from Northern California and the family had a logging business, but that's all I got. So we got to hear some more. 
I'm amazed that you found that. So it's true. I was just talking to Heather and I grew up in Tuolumne County, which is one of the most rural counties in California. In fact, as a kid growing up, there was one stoplight in the entire county. And um, my father and my grandfather owned a logging business. And my cousins were in logging and my uncles and my father and everyone was in logging. And, you know, initially I thought, well, perhaps I would do that, but I was always wired a little bit differently. And I enjoyed, you know, anatomy and things of that nature. So it was pretty, and I was good in math and good in um, school. And so my parents steered me away from logging or that type of industry and sort of made me think about science or going to college and things of that nature. So um, yeah, eventually, you know, I always knew I wanted to go to college. And so after high school, I went to college and um, I went to uh, Cal Davis, um, where I graduated there. And actually, interestingly enough, my, my, I'm very proud to say I played football at Davis. Nice. Uh, was, yeah, it was terrific. I was uh, running back there and had a really great time, you know, uh, balancing those things out. Um, eventually though, I, I managed to make it into, uh, medical school. I went to Tulane for medical school and then the army paid my way through medical school. And so after graduation, I went into the army. Um, before I went into medical school, I pretty much knew I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And so this is kind of why I wanted to go into medicine. I used to hunt a lot, or I still actually enjoy hunting. And so as part of that process, you have to process the animals, the deer in particular. So I was always so fascinated with gutting deer and sort of seeing the organs and the inside, which I know sounds kind of morbid, but in truth, it made me very comfortable with anatomy from an early age. Um, so I wasn't afraid to get my hands bloody. Yeah, we, we don't we don't get a lot of Boston hunters, you know, you know, they, they, so we've had some people on from, you know, from from Texas and they got their 30 guns in the rack and all that good stuff. And they're shooting off in the backyard. But that's not that's not something you hear about from orthopedic surgeons in Boston too often. So, right. I think if you're so people in Tuolumne County, though, it's very common, um, you know, gun racks in the parking lots of the high school and things like that. I mean, you know, again, those are all very common growing up. Um, but I have continued to hunt actually, just as an aside, I did uh, shoot a nice, I shot a nice buck in Nantucket, uh, this fall. Uh, it was terrific with a bow, of course, but, um, yeah, you know, processed him right there and did, did everything you would expect. So he's in our freezer right now. And, then, and so how, how long is the, uh, is the hunting, uh, season in Nantucket? I mean, it can't be in the summertime. <laughs> <That's for sure>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, We'll try to stay on topic here, but um, yeah. So uh, hunting season goes till the end of uh, December uh, across Massachusetts, but Nantucket just happens to have a lot of deer and it's very easy to get a deer tag there. You just have to know somebody sure. to be able to hunt on the land uh, that supports that. But again, I'd be happy to go on those stories, but um, No, that's awesome. I, I have a place up at Queechee, Vermont. And so I've got, you know, 10 acres there up in the woods. So I'm going to invite you up and we're going to, we're going to do some hunting one day. I'd like that a lot. That'd be awesome. I would love that. I would love that very much. No doubt. All right. So let's, let's go back. Cause you know, let's roll the bean footage back here for a little bit. Cause I, I think it's super important. And, and I really want to know uh, at what point you, where you knew that you were going to go down the path of the army, cause you go to Honolulu to be able to do your residency, you know, you graduate medical school uh, and, and it's time to do your thing. And you're a triple our triple army medical center in Honolulu. Um, you know, so, so what was the path? When was the decision made? Cause, cause the, that's the thing I don't have. I don't have the year. When, when were you in your, your residency training in Hawaii? 
Yeah. So I I graduated from medical school in 1996, and early on when I went to Tulane, I knew like my dad couldn't afford me going to medical school. So and I always had this fascination with the army, or you know respected that. So I did apply and was on scholarship throughout my entire time at Tulane. And so when I graduated, um, I was commissioned and then went to um, like July of 1996. I did my surgical internship in Honolulu in Tripler. And then after internship, I did a operational tour in Korea. So I was a flight surgeon from approximately like late 1997 through 1998. And then I matched in my residency back in Hawaii and I came back out of Korea to Tripler and was there from like 98 to 2002. And then, um, so that's what, that's what I wanted to get at because yeah. obviously nine 11 happens right in, in, yeah. in that mix right in there. So you're, you're, you were active, you were in the, in the process of getting your residency already prior to nine 11, but then all of a sudden nine 11 happens and, and the world's upside down, especially for people that are, that are in military. Yeah. So when that happened, that was about eight o'clock in the morning, East coast time, which is at the time, at, the, at that time, it was a five hour difference to um, Hawaii. So I remember my sister, I think it was about five hours, but my sister-in-law called us at three o'clock in the morning. We turned the t- television on to obviously witness the you know terrible events that were occurring. And for, for me, it changed things tremendously. Um, all the bases were shut down at that point. So I actually got my uniform and went into work because I knew that I was going to get shut out of being able to go in. I was a chief resident at that time. So yeah, we, we, we were in Hawaii. So we were a little bit isolated from all the events. Um, Certainly there were active duty troops that were getting mobilized from Honolulu. If, If you ever saw Honolulu or just Oahu in general, there's not only, there's a huge Marine Corps base, army base and Naval uh, operation. So a lot of things were going on at that time. But I managed to finish my residency. I then, I actually was a, a sports medicine attending. It's it's even more convoluted. So my wife is an orthopedic surgeon who I think yeah, you we're, we're going to get there. I want to make yeah. sure Liz is getting it because that's a great topic too. So don't give it all up yet, but that's good. Yeah. <laughs> so we were training, I mean, at the same time, but she was a year behind me. And so the army and, and then Tripler needed like a sports medicine attending. So for a year, I was like a general orthopedic surgeon who did heavy sports medicine at Tripler. And it was great. Um, very similar to what I had been doing before. So at, eventually I, I got orders to go to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Fort Bragg, they loaned me out to Naval Hospital of Camp Lejeune. It's a Marine Corps base in Jacksonville, North Carolina. So I was there for a better part of two years, taking care of Marines and then eventually the um, army pulled me back from there, back to Fort Bragg. And then I deployed to Afghanistan, was there for about six months, came back and then got out of the army. Yeah. So that's, that's Operation Enduring Freedom with President Bush, right? When uh, he sends the crew over to Afghanistan at that point to, after 9-11 to identify. So, so I mean, are you comfortable talking about Afghanistan? I mean, I'm sure that was a, a, a really remarkable moment in your life. Yeah, it, it was, Scott. I mean, I think if you look at all of the major conflicts that have, uh, the U.S. has been in from, say, World War II, Vietnam, Korean War, and, and the like, I mean, war is ho- horrible, it's terrible. The one thing it does do is it does um, fast forward skill sets for orthopedic surgeons. And I would say I'm, I'm definitely, uh, I think I was the beneficiary of that. 
So for instance, uh, when I was there for about six months, we, uh, I did personally about 100 major open cases, uh, mostly amputations, but also uh, many external fixators. Of course, you know, I'm, I'm referencing all of the care that I took, that I, that I gave to the Afghan local pa- patients, Afghan National Army, and even really some bad guys as well during that time. Um, other care that was on coalition forces, I, I, don't, I don't really discuss that at all. But nonetheless, it was like everything that you can ever imagine um, that could happen, whether it was IEDs or, or artillery or bombs or small arms fire and things of that nature. Yeah, we took care of all that. A lot of blunt trauma as well. Yeah, for, for six months of your life. And I'm sure, you know, the, the worst of, of the worst. And as far as the amount of time commitment, I'm sure you weren't sleeping. I'm sure there wasn't enough help. And you were just, you know, it was just all, all encompassing. Yeah, and I think for everyone in that situation, you recognize like when you're deployed overseas, it's not just a singular event. Like you're not the only person getting deployed. It's like it takes a toll on your, in, in this case, on my wife. And at that point, we had two kids and, you know, she had a practice and so forth. So the real, you know, story is her. I mean, which if you met her, you kind of know you got to figure it out. But yeah, so she was there to support what I was doing. And um, my job was relatively easy. Yeah. And, and, and so can you talk about your medals? You get your four-time recipient of the Army Commendation Medal, as well as the Meritorious Service Medal as well. You know, obviously that's uh, pretty impressive. Just what does that mean for our listeners and, and, and how did that happen? Right. So the, the highest ranked medal I have is the Meritorious Service Medal, the MSM. And in that particular case, that was a, a singular event that occurred in which a suicide bomber um, went into a crowd of people that were actually watching a dog fight. That was a that was like a local sporting event and detonated and you know killed you know scores 20, 30 people. And so um, the the surviving uh, people came uh, were brought up to our camp and we triaged them and performed a, a true mass casualty. Like a you know at that time we had one orthopedic surgeon and one general surgeon. Um, so we were the only two uh, physicians. Um, and so we had some other nursing and other folks, but it was, it was a really uh, difficult situation, but everyone pitches in and we had trained for that. It, it, it truly did help you to train. Um, and it's an, it's an event that I'll never forget my, my life. Um, the, the, the other aspects of it, I think just represent, you know, my time, I spent 10 years on active duty and, you know, saw a lot of things over the course of that time. Yeah, no, uh, humility, I can hear it uh, for sure. But uh, so really, we appreciate your service and, and thank you for sort of taking the time to be able to share that your part of your story with our listeners. And, you know, so let's so let's talk about Liz. I mean, I, you are the first orthopedic surgeon on the show that is married to an orthopedic surgeon. We've had a daughter, a, a daughter and father. We're going to have a father son. But, you know, uh, being married to an orthopedic surgeon, Liz uh, Matskin, who's the chief of women's uh, sports medicine at the Brigham Women's Hospital. So she's a big deal, too. We're going to have to get her on the show next. We're going to talk to make sure Liz gets on. But it's got to be a crazy life, you know, because you're a super busy arthroplasty. She's super busy doing sports medicine. You got three daughters. I mean, who's taking care of what? What's going on in the house? Yeah, I think, I think, right. It is very busy and it's, it's a very simple life. And just basically, I just do what she tells me. Like if she says, just do something, I'm like, I'll just do that. And, I, and life just is much simpler when that happens, but no, you're right. So over the years, like we were laughing, like we've had, like we, 
we have two nannies, we've had husband and wife nannies living in, you know, uh, au pairs and, you know, every kind of, you know, piecing it all together, you can imagine. Um, but now I, you know, our oldest is in college. Um, I'll give a, give a shout out. She plays for the Hamilton women's hockey team. They have a semifinal tomorrow night against Middlebury. So, or Saturday night. So hopefully they're going to pull off a big upset and our, you know, our middle daughter's a junior in high school. She lives at a boarding school and our youngest one is also freshman in high school at a boarding school. So we're empty nesters now. So life is pretty simple. Well, that's awesome. I got to, well, for giving out shout outs for hockey, I got to give a shout out to my second in line, Mitchell, who plays for Endicott and uh, they just uh, won their semifinal match. So they're going to play up against UNE for their final on Saturday to go to the NCAA tournament. So it's, uh, that's great stuff, man. Can't have too much time in hockey, Rick. That's for sure. But uh, well, that's great. Glad to hear that the girls are doing well and they survived the parenthood of two orthopedic surgeons and, uh, and their uh, crazy lives. That's for sure. So, you know, it's interesting. So in your professional world, you know, you've been moving around Boston a little bit. Now you're at, the, you know, you, you made your way to the Baptist. You know, you were at Tufts with Chuck Cassidy as a dear friend of mine. And I don't know if you know, but I did the, the Tufts residency back in the, uh, uh, in the, in the 90s. And, uh, but then spent a ton of time at the Baptist, which I loved as well. And, and we know Tiger Lee at BU as well. But so how has the, the migration been? Obviously, it seems like you're in a really good sweet spot now. You found you're at, the, you're at the height of your professional career. How's it going? Yeah, it's great. And I, I, would, I would say, um, you know, I came out of the Army doing a lot of sports medicine, but I don't, I don't really love sports medicine. Like, I don't, I mean, I like the patients, but I just don't really connect with them as much. So I knew that I always wanted to do an orthoplasty fellowship. I, you know, I like, you know, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents, whatever you want to say. I, I you know, I like, I like that. Uh, that group of patients. So um, we were living in the New England area and, and I knew that I wanted to go to Boston and I, and I lucky enough applied, got into the fellowship with the Baptist and loved it, had a great time. And so we recognized um, Liz was practicing down in Rhode Island at Foundry Orthopedics in a a private group there. And we knew we're going to come back to Boston. So basically kind of leveraged my position at the Baptist to, to try to find um, academic total joint places. And so I I hooked up with Chuck and it was terrific for a decade. I mean, I I enjoyed my time very much at Tufts Medical Center. I was the chief of arthroplasty uh, at Tufts Medical Center, which is a misnomer because I was like the chief of one for many years, but (laughs) (laughs) nonetheless, it was, it was good. And I was able to really grow that part of my practice. Um, but, you know, as you get older and I would say, I would say I outgrew Tufts in many ways. I was doing so many cases and I would say using up so many resources for Tufts and people that know Tufts, it's a very finite place. I just couldn't grow. And, and about that same time, the um, Boston Medical Center, uh, BU, had a need. They had a new, at the time, a new chairman. They were really recruiting heavily and devoting a lot of resources towards arthroplasty. So I was recruited, you know, very heavily to try to leave Tufts to come to BU. And I think, you know, when you're of a certain age, uh, you know, you, you think about that, like it's, you know, is this midlife? I mean, I don't know what it was, but it was a good move for me. And I left Tufts to take over as the chief of arthroplasty at BU, Boston Medical Center, and really start their program. It was very successful. I mean, I, I did a lot of cases and I felt like I had helped a lot of patients along the way. Um, they have, you know, there were some, some limitations there because arthroplasty is elective. And at the time it was very difficult to get elective patients to come in. Certainly it wasn't hard to get trauma patients 
to come into that space. But, you know, for patients to be elective, um, there were some challenges, but nonetheless, it was good. Um, and I think I, you know, published a fair amount on those patient populations in particular that were served by Boston Medical Center. But then the uh, Baptists joined Beth Israel Leahy to form, be part of BILH, and they were looking for an overall kind of academic chief of orthoplasty. And at that point, Dave Mattingly approached me. It, it would have been difficult for me to leave Tufts to go to the Baptist because the Baptists and Tufts are so uh, connected. So I'm not sure that would have been the right move um, for all institutions, but it was much easier for me to leave Boston Medical Center to take over the position at the Baptist. And um, since I love to do joint replacement and it's the mecca of joint replacement, it really seemed like a no brainer for me to do that. Yeah, you know, I have such incredible fond memories of the Baptist because as a Tufts resident, you know, we went over there, you know, and I probably spent at least six or nine months out of my residency training at the Baptist, uh, you know, and, and just the giants, right? Ben Beerbaum, Rod Turner, Dave Mattingly, you know, Joe McCarthy, just amazing people that, that, that I was training with. And, and for our listeners that, that aren't familiar, the New England Baptist Hospital is a truly unique hospital in our country where it's, it's really 100% orthopedics. That's, that's all they do. And, uh, and so sports medicine and spine, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget you know, Larry Bird had his spine surgery done when I was in training and they had this like literally became like the Larry Bird wing in the, the far back of uh, the hospital because that's where he was hanging out and just incredible memories. And, and for, from a, for, for an arthroplasty surgeon, it is the Mecca on the planet, right? I mean, you just everything is driven and around the world of arthroplasty and what you can do to help your patients. Yeah. And I, and I know you do uh, quite a bit of arthroplasty yourself and, um, you know, sort of, you know, recognize different numbers, but I would say, yeah, I mean, we're upwards of 7,000 total joints there, you know, another two, 3,000, you know, other inpatient cases, spine or some complex shoulder and things of that nature. So it's a, it's a real true um, orthopedic hospital. And, uh, you know, we, we try to seek orthopedic um, excellence really um, at that, at that place. Yeah, no, it, you know, it's funny. I mean, I, I look back, when I would make rounds with beer bomb and, you know, you're holding the chart and you're running around back in the day. And I, you know, you always like, you sound so old when you say this stuff, but, but it's true. I mean, literally the patients would spend three to five days in the acute side of the hospital, and then they would be discharged to the rehab, which was inside of the new England Baptist hospital for most right. patients where they spent another five to seven days. So some of these patients are spending upwards of two weeks in a hospital setting after a knee replacement and literally, our patients today are walking out pain-free two hours after their knee replacement. It's just unbelievable the changes that we've made. Certainly. And, and I would say you have incredible experience in an ASC setting. You've been doing it for quite a, quite a long time. Um, you know, for, for us that are in the sort of greater Boston area in the city, it's relatively new for us to consider outpatient total joint replacement. Today, I just did three at the Dedham facility and, you know, knee replacement, uh, gentleman with about a 30 degree varus deformity is able to correct it. And like you said, he's walking out in two hours. And even I was a little surprised about that. Um, and I also think, you know, some of, some of your, you know, your thoughts about narcotic free surgery are really the, this is, this is the future. This is the forefront. I totally agree with that. Um, so yeah, this patient went on, uh, you know, very minimal narcotics just for rescue medication. I think for, mostly for me than him really, you know, just so I didn't get a call, I think. But nonetheless, um, 
where we've come is in arthroplasty is amazing. Yeah, no, no, it really is. So, so let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, I want to talk a little bit because, you know, as, as our listenership has grown, you know, it's not just orthopedic surgeons that are listening. We have people from all walks. And, and so if you were going to like sort of, you know, counsel or give some advice to, to my mother, we always talk about Judy, my mother, she's always listening. You know, what's, what's, what's really cool for patients right now in the world of total joint replacement that's, that seems novel and, and, and really good for the patient? Sure. I mean, I think just, you know, starting with some of the things that have shown the biggest impact, just so patients understand is, you know, how we control blood loss during the surgery. Um, so now I'm sure you do as well. We use transexemic acid, um, whether topical or IV, that really limits the amount of bleeding and the, and the need for transfusions, which transfusions have, you know, a whole myriad of negative effects. Um, how we do surgery in a sort of the most painless way. Um, so whether we do it with um, spinal anesthetics, which is at the Baptist, for us, it's about 90, 95%. Um, certainly, peripheral nerve blocks have some benefit as well, though, though you know, th- those are debated to some degree. Um, we use a series of injections. And then also, you know, how we deal with the patient's pain, non shortal anti-inflammatories, uh, other type of mu receptors. So we try to use non-opioid medications because effectively, opioid medications make the patient sick. So whether it's nausea and the vomiting or just dizziness, dehydration, confusion, there's so many negative effects of that. So trying to counsel patients about that is a, one of the most important aspects of doing a replacement in what I, you know, in grandma, if you will. I mean, you know, the goals that we're trying to, trying to accomplish in, in, in a patient like your mother may be different than the ones you want to accomplish in, like, for instance, if you or I get a knee replacement. Yeah. And I, and I also want to emphasize, I think it was a really good point that you, that you made, Eric, which is not everybody's a candidate to go home the same day, right? So we're pretty particular to make sure that we're, we're cherry picking, if you will, the really healthy patients that are going to have good support at home and be able to, to really thrive at home. It's not like we're just kicking you out of the hospital and say, you know, call us in a few days when you're better. I mean, we really do help and support you, but there are still patients that require an overnight admission or, or admission to a rehab facility for that matter as well. It's been a little harder in the setting of COVID because we've been restricted for admissions of, of patients to hospitals, but that's been opening up some as well. Uh, no doubt. Yeah. I think some of the other, you know, technologies that are pretty exciting, um, certainly robotic surgery. Uh, that's, that's something that um, I have experience with and uh, certainly think it has a real value for some of my patients, mostly is on the unicompartmental replacements. In particular, I think that's shown to have great value. The uh, benefits of really customized knee replacements, I've, I've started performing more of those uh, over the last few years as more and more clinical outcomes show a benefit for patients. And I certainly think that I see that with my patients. So that has a certain value add to that. Um, hip replacements, I think those are, you know, uh, do very well. Uh, I particularly use uh, a, a direct anterior approach, but again, the benefits of that over other approaches is really can be debated. Um, and then finally, I think the use of ceramics. Um, I use a ceramic on highly crossing polyethylene um, amongst other things, we published that that is really the right way to perform surgery, probably even in those patients less than the age of 30. So really, really young uh, hip replacement. So those are some of the exciting things that I see, you know, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and for the listeners, the ceramic means instead of using a metal ball, it's a ceramic ball, which is super hard, if you will, and it has less ability to create 
uh, wear over time of the plastic insert that goes inside the hip, which is one of the things that we worry about over time, especially for the younger for the younger patients that are undergoing you know replacement surgery. So it's interesting. So talk, let's talk a little bit about the custom knee replacement. I mean, how do you decide you know which patient is right for a custom knee replacement? Because I'm sure you're not doing it for everybody. So how how do you how do you walk through that algorithm? Yeah, that's a great question. So first off, I think, so um, Dr. Ayers, uh, David Ayers uh, out at UMass published or presented at Hip and Knee Society several, uh, not several years, like two years ago, that the outcomes of knee replacement really have nothing to do with the implant that you choose and have almost everything to do with the patient's mental component score. So for those patients in which effectively it's, it, it's hard for them to cope with the stresses of whatever, life or the, the, or the disability or, right, you meet certain patients in which th- they have like a resiliency factor or a grit factor. And these are all quantifiable factors that you could measure. So effectively, I, I look at some patients who I think they're going to have pain after their knee replacement. Oh, and also, by the way, we know that about 20% of patients are unsatisfied with their knee replacement, not just whether it's mine, but this is nationally across the, across the board. So when I look at that, I want to make sure that I'm giving the patient um, the absolute sort of peace of mind to understand that when they have pain in their knee, it absolutely has nothing to do with their artificial knee because effectively I've gone to the point of customizing it for them. And I believe that that adds a, uh, a layer of comfort for them to understand that whether pain may be from surgery, which, you know, it's part of the healing process, they don't have to feel the... Um, uncertainty of saying, is this piece too big or too small or what have you? So that's one of them. And then two, I would say is both recent data that's come out from the American Joint Replacement Registry, as well as the Australian Registry showing as good, if not better survivorship um, for a customized knee, uh, I think adds a lot of credence to the survivability of it. And then thirdly, which is um, uh, several studies looking at the performance of a customized knee or the forgotten joint score, effectively, like if you ask somebody, hey, uh, did you have a knee replacement? They're like, yeah. And, they, and you say, well, which knee? And they're like, I forgot which knee it was. And that happens more commonly in a customized knee setting. Of course, all of these types of claims that I just made can be debatable depending on the method of the science, how we look at it. But what's happened for me personally over time is that I felt a value for a customized knee. It's a long answer to your question. So I get folks that come in who have different anatomy, or I find them to be, you know, worried about the surgery or younger patients that are looking for like an advantage um, when they want to play pickleball or something like that. For me personally, I'll tend to discuss with them about the benefits of a, a potential customized knee. No, and I really appreciate the thoughtful approach that you were able to outline there for our listeners, because I know that uh, there, there is a lot of uh, debate back and forth as to, you know, customized knee versus standard. And while we're talking about it, I think we want to make sure our listeners understand. Can you just give us a, a brief description of what a customized knee means compared to a standard off-the-shelf total knee replacement? Sure. Um, so a customized knee is a CAT scan that's performed of the patient's knee. And then from the CAT scan, a three-dimensional model is made. And then from the three-dimensional model, a 3D printed uh, piece of metal in the form of a knee replacement is made. And it's designed specifically for the patient, for their anatomy, for the, you know, if you think about the knee, what I I say is, you know, there's six degrees of freedom. So there's flexion, extension, 
internal external rotation and varus and valgus. It's like just fancy terms to basically say, you know, there's a lot of different angles you got to figure out. And the customized approach is designed to try to solve all those things before you even get into the operating or yeah, before you get into the operating room, the off the shelf knee, which effectively has, has already has a preset mold of how to solve those problems before you even come in. And it's just a matter of sizing the sort of piece of bone that you have to, to ensure that you get the best fit or size of that knee or off the shelf knee onto that piece of bone. Now with that, there's different technologies you can use, such as robotics or different guides um, or even like accelerometers, um, which I know you're familiar with all these types of things, but basically different technologies to put the metal piece into the knee and, and effectively they all work really well. Yeah, for the, for the majority of patients that undergo, you're absolutely right. And, and what we've heard from multiple arthroplasty specialists that we've had on the show I think most importantly, if you're trying to decide who's going to do your knee replacement for you or a loved one, is is not, probably don't go to your doctor and ask them to do something that they don't do. Uh, go to the doctor who's a master surgeon that's really good at what they do, and then have them do their best to take care of you. And I think ultimately, if you do that, more often than not, you will get an excellent result and an outcome for your patients. Scott, I totally agree with that. And I think that's important to understand you know, at this point in my career, I have a program. There's a program that I use to get the best outcomes, but some patients don't, you know, they don't, they don't um, agree with my program or, or somebody else has a program which resonates with them better. And that's, that's great because you want to go to the surgeon that you are resonating with and you agree with their program. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, Hey, look, Eric, this is, this has really, you know, been fantastic. I, I, I just, I just love this job, you know, love what I do. I love orthopedics and it's just amazing to have other people that are as passionate about it and can share, you know, their really unique stories. I mean, we can't thank you enough for your devoted service to our country, for your time in the army. Uh, you know, I think it's amazing that you have a, a, an orthopedic surgeon wife who's as busy and as, as, uh, as impressive as you are. And you got to let Liz know we're going to get her on the show uh, but really, really greatly appreciate the time that you spent with us today. Scott, thanks so much. It's a real pleasure and honor to uh, be on your show. And again, I look forward to getting together and uh, uh, socializing outside of work. Oh, that sounds fantastic. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.